0: hello listeners and welcome to another episode of climate ready i'm alex maroner joined by ingrid timbo we hope that you all are staying safe and healthy during the ongoing covid 19 crisis we are here to offer you a short break from the day-to-day challenges we're facing with a fascinating discussion around traditional ecological practices and nature-based solutions for water security
1: hey everyone so in today's episode we'll be hearing how ancient community-led water harvesting practices in the mountains of the andes are helping to provide water for a city of 10 million people downstream. We're joined by Dr. Boris Ochoa Takachi of Imperial College London, who will help us illustrate the strong upstream downstream connections between rural communities and urban water users. Recently, he's been leading a project in Peru in close collaboration with local communities. And I think you'll definitely want to hear about it.
0: Stick around after the main interview for another installment of Climate of Hope in partnership with our friends at the World Youth Parliament for Water. For even more perspectives from Peru, we'll hear from Maria Angelica Villasante Villafuerte and Hernanteo, both members of the Peruvian Youth Against Climate Change. They discuss their work to increase youth involvement in decision-making around climate change to achieve an intergenerational transfer of good practices and lessons learned. Enjoy the episode! <laughs> Climate Ready is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation.
1: The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de.
0: Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water.
1: So today we're talking with Dr. Boris Ochoa Takachi, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Imperial College London in the United Kingdom. Boris is a hydrologist and civil engineer with both academic and professional experience in Andean hydrology, hydrological monitoring and modeling, and also water resources management. Welcome to Climate Ready.
2: Thank you very much, Ingrid. Thanks for being
0: here, Boris. First of all, Could you start off giving us a little bit of background about yourself and what got you interested in researching and working with Andean communities
2: to address their water security challenges? So I'm a civil uh, civil engineer by training. Uh, But when I was studying civil engineering, I wanted to look at a closer link uh, with the environment and, and with ecology. And as a person that studies basically things that are very gray, uh, built with concrete, the only way in which I could find that link uh, with the environment was through hydrology, uh, through water. When I created this link was when I was uh, doing my dissertation uh, project for my undergrad here in Ecuador, and I was looking at how important uh, rural communities and mountain communities are for cities uh, that depend on water for different uses, not only for human consumption, but for economic development of the country. And it was very surprising to see that the the people uh, that are most important to the conservation and for the guarantee that we will have water are these people that live in rural communities and they don't enjoy all the the benefits of economic development. So I wanted to connect what I studied with this more gray civil engineering uh, career uh, with uh, the ecology and the environment, and the, the, the development of, of these communities.
1: Excellent. So, You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the intersection of climate change and water. And so we know that climate change is introducing greater uncertainty into the hydrologic cycle. And this is particularly true for groundwater resources. So I'm wondering how modern day water managers in Peru, and I guess actually we could extend that. We should extend that to Ecuador as well, are working to adjust their water infrastructure to deal with these new challenges.
2: I am Ecuadorian, but I done most of my work in Peru and well one reason for doing that is because in general we have the the same ecosystems we have the Andes that cross from Chile and Argentina all the way up to Colombia and Venezuela so the, the work that I've been doing was with an NGO called Condesan in Peru and the opportunity that I had working with this NGO was that the research and the the technical work that we were doing could be reflected in in policy. That is very, very interesting from the point of view that it is not necessarily that common that science translates directly into policy. And one of the greatest examples of this was lobbying for a law that was published in 2014. This is a law on uh, retribution mechanisms for ecosystem services. It has the concept of cities that are located generally downstream from the highland ecosystems or from the mountain communities that live upstream, that enjoy those benefits of economic development and use water and the different ecosystem services that are derived from those ecosystems upstream, they can retribute in some way the people that live in the the communities upstream this law became a mechanism for water supply companies for hydroelectric generator companies for bottling companies for example support for pub- public and private institutions to share some of the of the benefits that they can enjoy from the ecosystem services with the people that live in those same ecosystems that deliver these benefits to them and in recent years, it became more and more obvious that this retribution couldn't be just in terms of civil gray infrastructure. And the reason for that is specifically because of climate change. Generally, as civil engineers, we are used to build dams and reservoirs and canals, etc., with certain lifespan that we defined before building the actual infrastructure. The problem is that because of climate change, this gray infrastructure doesn't have the same it's very inflexible it doesn't have the same adaptive capacity that normally nature uh, may have to these environmental changes so in order to provide a response to this inflexibility and lack of adaptive capacity of the grey infrastructure we started working towards the use of natural infrastructure as a climate change adaptation strategy and this was not with the idea of rep- replacing necessarily the gray infrastructure, but to really provide an alternative and a complementary option to the civil infrastructure. Going back to your research,
0: you're focusing on combining indigenous knowledge or nature-based infrastructure with what we would consider nowadays more more typical gray infrastructure, hydrological engineering to solve problems relating to water security. What are the benefits you started to touch on there um, of, of combining these very different approaches and what are some of the complementarities of using both in tandem.
2: The way in which I I see this is basically as not having all the eggs in the same basket. We start with the concept of the hydrological engineering uh, infrastructure, the most most traditional civil works. Then we we started using this concept of green infrastructure, which is a set of interconnected systems that can work uh, with, with nature and that can also be shaped by humans. And then the other concept of natural infrastructure appeared, which is basically understanding nature, the natural ecosystems like forests and wetlands and and other types of ecosystems, as also a set of elements connected in a system. And then we have this other concept of indigenous infrastructure, which is trying to recover or revalue some of the practices that some of these communities that live in, in rural areas have been practicing for many centuries and sometimes even more. And there is also the other concept of blue infrastructure, which is more specifically related to water. So I think that just the fact that we give these different colors, if you want, to these different types of infrastructure, put this idea of we don't necessarily need to rely on one particular type of infrastructure because we don't want to be dogmatic in in how a solution might be. So this idea of not having all the eggs in the same basket or, or actually having a basket with rainbow eggs is the idea of, of having combination of different types of options and solutions in order to solve problems that are related to water security and also to provide adaptation strategies to climate change. When you have multiple options, you can provide more cost-effective solutions. For example, in one of the most extreme cases that we work in, which is the city of Lima in Peru, it is located in a desert. It is the second largest desert city in the world after Cairo in, in Egypt. And they need water that originates from the mountains. And sometimes this water is not enough, especially in the dry seas. So one option that they have is to build a desalination plant because they are located close to the sea. But building a a desalination plant is so expensive that the same money could be invested in a portfolio of different interventions in the mountains and in the other ecosystems that are close to the city that could justify the fact that, yes, you diversify your portfolio and you could be more, more cost effective. And at the same time, you could be more flexible, robust, and you could have a higher resilience to climate change.
1: I really like this visualization of the, the rainbow colored egg basket. <laughs> that, that's really nice. It builds in some robustness and redundancy when, you know, we're looking at a much more variable future where we don't necessarily know what the system is going to look like. Um, Having multiple different options potentially available, I think, is really important. I want to dive in a little bit more. You mentioned the use of indigenous methods or or technologies. And so I'm wondering if you could describe some of these technologies or modes of water management that these pre-Incan civilizations used to store water and how specifically you're working to integrate these approaches into helping to solve our our modern water resources challenges.
2: There are several methods for water harvesting, which is more or less the, the term that we use for this type of indigenous infrastructure that is used for water. And one that is very similar to the ones that we have in the Andes is located in Spain, and it's called a careo. These are a set of canals that are used to divert water from small streams in the mountains and let the water infiltrate in permeable soils. So when the water is in the soils, it can be used as a natural reservoir for this water. And that is very, very similar to the systems that we have in the Andes that we called amunas in some places or mamanteo in the the specific community in which we were looking at. And what is interesting is that these amunas in Peru, were built as early as the fifth century, whereas the Carreo system in Spain was built from the 9th to the 15th century by the Arabs. It was several centuries before the actual connection between the two worlds, between the European and the American uh, continents. And still, the, the, the same communities that live in the mountains came with a very similar solution to to solve these problems. And the one that we looked at specifically is called Mamanteo in the community of Guamantanga in, in the Sierra of Lima. And it has the concept similar to the Carreo, in which they divert water from small streams, they spread the water in the slopes of the mountains, and the water infiltrates the soil. The water travels much slower throughout the soil than it does over the surface. And the residence time of the water, we found that can span from two weeks to eight months with an average of 45 days. So basically, they store the water during the very short wet season, and then they can use this water during the dry season when this is stored in the soil.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I was actually recently in southern Spain and Andalusia and saw some of the correos that you, that you mentioned. And so it's it's super interesting and to see that there's this renewed interest in these historical methods and models.
0: And Boris, based on all of that, it seems like natural water storage sounds like a great addition or a to the engineered infrastructure that's being designed to provide water supply for places like Lima. I imagine though that the biggest challenge has to do with scaling up in order to, to make a dent in the volume of
2: water needed during the dry season. Probably before going to that point, I think for several years, researchers knew about these systems, but before they were just looked at as, as very, let's say, cute, but not necessarily functional. And probably since 2013, so that is already six years ago, the NGO Condesan in Peru was collaborating with Imperial College in a project that tried to use or take advantage of mountain ecosystem services to promote the development of cities, but also of the local communities that live in in the mountains. Then another NGO called Forest Trends, uh, an American NGO, came into the the scene and proposed the idea of using these mechanisms for upstream and downstream collaboration and actually proposing financial schemes that could help the development of projects that can foster the sustainable development of these local communities. So in this work, uh, we found that not only there is potential to conserve and restore the highland ecosystems in order to deliver good ecosystem services for the cities that are located downstream, but we we learned in Peru that conservation is not the only option to enhance the delivery of ecosystem services. When we started investigating on this particular type of intervention and we started socializing this with water managers and and policymakers and trying to get funding in this case for the community that was using this type of intervention, we found that actually these options are, are quite attractive for water managers for several reasons, because they have cultural pride. They want to say, oh, the, these options are actually quite ancient. So we are respecting the harmony that these, these communities have with nature and etc. And also because they provide co-benefits that the modern engineering options don't provide. For example, if you conserve or restore a forest Then you are also thinking of air purification, you are thinking of carbon sequestration, you are thinking of the beauty of the landscape, spiritual values, you have the cultural services that this type of of infrastructure provides, which are not necessarily embedded in the the modern uh, engineering options that we as civil engineers are used to build. But scale is really the key issue here because although they are very attractive for water managers and for citizens in general, there is still a lack of evidence that they will work. And that is where we come in as scientists, as practitioners, technicians, that we want to promote the use of these types of options and these different types of infrastructure, but we don't want to go and promote their use if we are not sure that they are going to work. So what we wanted to do is to really provide quantitative evidence that these systems can work, for a case like, for example, in, in this case, the 10 million city that is Lima. And there are many issues that are around scale. For example, one of the most obvious uh, that we found is that the indigenous infrastructure, because it is managed by people, it needs a very strong social component. So it is not as easy as as just building the infrastructure and, and let it work. These canals that are used as part of the Amuna system and the Mamanteo system, they require a role of the local community in maintaining the canals, cleaning the canals. It is very strongly linked to their cultural pride, to their cultural practices. They have rituals around the the systems. They go once a year. And they bless the canal, they open the gates for the, uh, allowing the water to get into the canals and so on. I think that scaling up the physical system itself is not as difficult as scaling up all the culture and, uh, and social aspect that comes with it. In your project, how are modern
0: indigenous groups in Peru involved, whether they're just consulted for their deep well of knowledge, or if they're involved in scaling up citing of projects and saying where could this be applied,
2: or what's their level of involvement? We try to avoid uh, being the typical parachute scientist, as, as they call it in the world there is a a condemnation to this parachute type of research that refers to scientists and research groups coming, especially from the global north, coming to poorer parts of the world, conducting research, publishing findings in prestigious journals, and then giving little or no credit to the local collaborators, especially when there are communities involved. So we as South Americans ourselves and me as an Andean people, myself, we've seen the immense potential that our countries have if we work together. So in the, in the community of Guamantanga in Peru, in which we conducted our research, we work closely together with the local community, especially with one of my key colleagues in, in the research, Katia Perez. She's a social scientist from Ecuador, and she was working in a concept that she calls community science. This is very similar to the concept of, of citizen science, that you might have heard of. In this context, community science involves, for example, the participation of local communities in the co-generation of scientific knowledge. So not only for the sake of science, but really to use the knowledge that can be generated in this collaboration to improve decision-making, and really to promote actions that can be implemented directly by these communities, especially to improve their livelihood. And we also want to revalue what rural science is or what indigenous knowledge is. We want to highlight the huge complementarity that scientific knowledge, ancient knowledge, indigenous knowledge, et cetera, have to solve modern issues.
1: As we kind of get towards the close here, as part of the project, you know, we had talked about the issue of scale. We also know that one of the challenges of these nature-based solutions and even traditional ecological knowledge, et cetera, is that the solutions are often highly localized and can sometimes be hard to replicate in different contexts. So how can managers or engineers outside of Peru use these approaches and how can we help tailor them to different regions?
2: I want to cite Kate Broman from the University of Minnesota in an interview that we had back in December in AGU. She said the beauty of indigenous knowledge is its specificity. And indigenous knowledge of water management is particularly beneficial because it's closely tied to the place where it was developed. And I think this is important because this infrastructure is responsive to the local conditions. So we are really doubtful that one solution can be applied directly from one place to another. I think that we, we need to think a bit more holistically. So this means that what we learned from the water harvesting practices in one area can also be applied to another area, but not the practice itself, but the approach that you can take. So we need to think of inclusive, adaptable solutions, responsive solutions. We really argue for understanding what is the cultural management of water in in different places as an option, instead of thinking of replicating the practice from community A to community B. And I think that this is more or less the same what happens with civil infrastructure. So we can, we can just build a dam in place A and then use exactly the same blueprints in place B. So we study the, the blueprints, we study the new place, we adapt the, the blueprints. Sometimes we completely change the type of infrastructure as a whole because it, it, it was not going to work necessarily in place B. So I think that what we need to remember is the popular phrase that says that one size doesn't fit all. And, and probably avoid the other popular phrase also that says when you have a hammer, all problems look like nails.
1: Yes. <laughs> exactly.
0: And as we're closing up, Boris, just one final question for you that's a little bit open-ended. We've touched a little bit on climate change, but climate change takes up a lot of space in the room in terms of planning for the future, and rightfully so. But do you feel that there are some other water management challenges that we're not adequately considering at the moment?
2: Yeah, I I think climate change, or indeed the climate crisis that we live on right now requires careful thinking. And as I said before, as water managers, we need to avoid being dogmatic. And this is one of the biggest challenges that we face. for example, We are familiar with the concept of integrated water resources management, abbreviated as IWRM. And this concept started as a very useful framework to manage water at a basin scale, integrating different actors' interests and and solve common problems, etc. But at some point, this concept was distorted and we ended up with the IWRM dogma. For many international cooperation agencies and government offices, etc., implementing the IWRM Became the aim instead of being the means to achieve other aims or, or actually to solve water related problems. So we forgot about the truly integrated water resources management and we followed blindly the IWRM in capital letters as, as a dogma. And in this case, many investments in water infrastructure were just simply rebranded as IWRM yeah. to continue accessing funds. So I think that the same thing might happen with climate change. And sadly, the same might happen with nature-based solutions. So I think that we need less brands and we need more critical thinking, more critical action, and and to be more flexible to avoid these dogmas.
1: This idea of moving away from these dogmas, that's a really important reminder that things like nature-based solutions, things like IWRM are not just a a box to check on a funding application, but actual iterative processes that that are working to get us towards greater water security in the future.
2: All right. Well, muchas gracias, Boris. Thank you very much, Ingrid. Thank you very much, Alex. And yes, I, I didn't want to be pessimistic with the challenges. Yeah. <laughs> I still think there are lots of opportunities, actually, to, to solve the most critical water-related problems that we face in the world right now.
0: Thanks so much again, Boris. Thank you very much,
1: Brian. So Alex, we should definitely start by acknowledging the new metaphor that Boris brought up during our chat. Since Easter was not that long ago, I feel like it's still appropriate to be talking about rainbow-colored baskets of eggs. But in all seriousness, you know, I think he makes a good point throughout the episode that nature-based or traditional ecological approaches are not necessarily a silver bullet to the challenges that we are facing, nor are they meant to replace the use of built hydrological infrastructure such as levees or dams. I really see his work as having two main goals, to place more value on the role of rural and indigenous communities as it relates to catchment level management, and also to highlight the processes that we can use to more holistically address water management challenges at at a much larger scale.
0: Yeah, definitely. At the end, he gave us a piece of advice to walk away with as well that regardless of the approaches we take to adapt to climate change and work towards water security, that we should never be too dogmatic. Context-specific management, and especially approaches that involve local communities, are often your best bet towards achieving long-lasting and resilient solutions.
1: And with that, we'll now turn to our Climate of Hope segment that we've been doing this year in partnership with the World Youth Parliament for Water. María Ángelica Villasante-Bioforte and Hernán Teo, both members of Peruvian Youth Against Climate Change, discuss their work to increase youth involvement in local and national decision-making around climate change in order to achieve an intergenerational transfer of good practices and lessons learned. Take it away, María Ángelica and Hernán.
3: Peru is highly dependent on water resources from high mountain ecosystems in the Andes. Due to major changes in climate variability that affect water reserves, we have become more vulnerable, from droughts that limited water access in the coast to floods that affected the quality of life of Indian and Amazonian communities. In this context, children and youth get the worst part by losing their parents, houses, schools, or being not considered as part of the problem.
1: So, how can we
0: discuss about effecting actions against climate change with lasting policies if children and youth are not being included? In Peru, as Peruvian Youth Against Climate Change, we influence in the implementation of the intergenerational approach in the design of climate policies with the aim to get an institutional framework that fosters the participation of youth in decision-making to achieve an intergenerational transfer of good practices and lessons learned, as well as permanently revitalize climate ambition.
3: Last year, we got a young representative to join the National Commission on Climate Change, and we are working on the incorporation of other young people in the Municipal Environmental Commissions. It means that projects from youth-based organizations will be considered as climate solutions. Since these changes happen, we see that Peruvian youth seeks to work together to obtain a greater impact. It gives us hope that more and more people will understand that climate crisis is a priority and we all should get involved.
0: That will do it for this episode of Climate Ready. Thanks again to our interview guest, Dr. Boris Ochoa-Takachi, and to Maria Angelica and Hernan for their Climate of Hope contribution. Until next time, everyone. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Tembo.